Turn, if you will, to the book of Micah. We've been dealing with Christians in the state. This weekend I collated all the questions and tried to organize them, categorize them. So those are, are getting ready to uh, be addressed. I'm thinking some of them are pretty obvious they've been addressed already, but we want to make sure we do that. Um, We started out by dealing with uh, some of the perspectives we should have in coming to uh, answer the question, what is my relationship to the state? How much should I be involved in it? How much should I seek its well-being, as it were? We looked at Proverbs, we looked at the New Testament, and we are now trying to look at the big picture of things. And fortunately or unfortunately, the big picture requires a little bit of background in the Old Testament. Um, everybody uh, should be realizing that Daniel's a very pertinent book in our day, as is the book of Revelation, becoming more and more clear why that book was written. And <clears throat> so in focusing on the kingdom of God or in trying to answer about, I don't know, the Christian and the state, we just wanted to focus on the kingdom of God as briefly as possible, but that word possible is a, a, an interesting word when it comes to the kingdom of God. Um, just want to focus on it. Why? Because the kingdom of God is huge. The kingdom of God is huge in the New Testament. Um, we went through, just looked at a few verses or read a few verses last week of what it means, but our focus is on the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is central to our lives. And, and we must grasp that. <clears throat> We've gone through the Old Testament, got up to the point of the Davidic covenant. And remember, this, this, this is sort of the important thing to take away from the Davidic covenant. God says to David, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And so the seed of the woman is now the seed of David. Um, and that is just extremely important. And this one who comes from your loins, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And that controls, just in a gigantic way, the rest of the history of redemption. So we looked at uh, three. I added a fourth psalm on the fly. Uh, four psalms from David that he wrote in view of 2 Samuel 7. And there's a lot of debate out there in the theological world, and you probably spills over in just to the regular world, you know, about all the eschatology and this and that and the other. And, and a lot of the confusion comes because folks will not realize that David, you know, <clears throat> uh, was the, the one who received this covenant from God, and David expounded what this covenant meant in the Psalms. He expounded them in 1000 AD, and it's important to get that, because the prophets don't come along until 250 years later. And the prophets do not come along and say something different about the Davidic covenant than David said about the Davidic covenant. They, gr they grasp what David has said and they expand it, they add to it, they elaborate it, but they never change from it. So I know I've got my sad little diagram here. It looks like it's from the 40s. It's really from the 80s. Um, it's the best I can do. I've, I've just, I only have so much real estate to hit the back row back there, so I have to put everything bold. I know poor old Matt squirms when, I, when he sees these, but uh, it, it looks busy, but it really isn't. These are the components 
of the, of the kingdom of God that we see out of the Psalms of David. And it's really what we read in the New Testament. Um, it's just sort of often obscure to us in the Old Testament because just really the language of the Old Testament can be very difficult. So here is the kingdom of God. Here is how David interprets uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Today we just want to look at the writing prophets, in particular Micah. And we say writing prophets because, as many of you know, there were speaking prophets who didn't write. Elijah and Elisha should come to mind as some prominent speaking prophets who never wrote anything down, at least that was uh, passed on to us as part of, of the Word of God, as part of Scripture. So this morning we're going to look at prophesying the kingdom of God. We've been the promise of the kingdom of God. Now the prophesying the kingdom of God will be looking at Micah as representative of what they call the pre-exilic prophets. Sounds like a fancy word, but all it is is Israel uh, just so grieved the Lord, uh, so angered God that he threw them out of the land and they went into exile in Babylon. So all the prophets that prophesied up to that point are called pre-exile prophets, just trying to date them. They, were, they came before the children of Israel were taken out of the land and brought to Babylon. Then there's the exilic prophets, those that wrote during that time, um, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then there are those that wrote after that time, post-exilic prophets. So what we'll be looking at today is a pre-exilic prophet, Micah, as representative of the prophets of this time period. So, Chris, you want to ask the Lord to be with us? Father, what an amazing thing that we have your word in front of us. Um, Lord, this is all God-breathed. This is all from you. And Lord, we just pray that this time, uh, as we present your word, as Steve presents your word, that he would do so as one presenting the utterances of God. And uh, Lord, that we, your people, would be subject to it, that we would listen, that we would appreciate. Lord, we certainly don't want to be like the Hebrews who grew sluggish in their hearing and grew tired of, of... uh, of, of Scripture in some ways um, and stopped listening and stopped paying attention and drifted. Lord, we don't want to be that. Um, Lord, we want to be people who um, treasure your word in our hearts uh, that are eager to hear what you have to say. Um, Lord, not only so that we can get a, a greater glimpse of who you are, but so that we can live in this life faithfully. And Lord, as we think about the kingdom, the kingdom is everything, that we are a part of the kingdom now and that, that we would understand our roles as citizens of the kingdom in this life, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. and uh, So, Lord, just be with us. Give us everything we need to be faithful to you. Um, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, <clears throat> first I just want to look at if, what generally the prophets say, particularly the pre-exilic prophets. And once you sort of get in your mind, here's what they're really saying, then it becomes a whole lot easier to read them. I don't know about you, but I was reading Micah all week, and I was scratching my head most of the time. Uh, So if you find yourself scratching your head or getting bored or eyes kind of closed, you're not the only one who does it. It's difficult to read these prophets in certain places. I know that you're going along and you read something and go, oh, you know, Bethlehem, Judah, you know, one's going to come from you is going to be, man, I can get that, and your eyes light up, and then you go back to who's the Assyrian, who's this, who's that, what's this city name? So, you know, it's, hopefully this will help you have a little bit more, uh, I don't know, ability to read the prophets profitably. Um, 
And uh, so just what I say about this, what I say about generally about the prophets uh, is going to be true of Micah. So when we go through Micah, we don't have to stop and go into these things. We will have already looked at them. So one of the things about the pre-exilic prophets uh, was that it was a time of prosperity in Israel. Um, and that's important to understand because a lot of what's said in the prophets you know, just shows that these people are doing well. Uh, there's lots of wealth. Oops. There's, oops. there's lots of um, uh, I don't know, goods and services going around. People are very complacent in their life because they're not having to knock themselves out to, to make a buck and get food. Things are, things are doing well. So there's prosperity. Both Israel and Judah enjoyed an extended period of prosperity, about 100 years of it. Um, Northern Israel benefited from a strong but evil kings, but they were strong kings, and therefore they had prosperity. And the southern kingdom benefited from a series of relatively good kings, so it was a time of prosperity. And it just, in the history of the world, when you see a time of prolonged prosperity, you usually see a population start to move into immorality and sin because people are no longer struggling in life just to make it by. Now they're trying to find out, well, how can I enjoy life? And when sinful humanity tries to enjoy life, it usually doesn't come out well. There's also a time of peace, uh, relative peace. Um, there were some local conflicts, but there weren't, there weren't any big empires beating the stuffing out of everybody at that time. Empires were in transition but northern Israel is going to very soon experience conquest and deportation from the Assyrians. And southern Judah will also soon be invaded by the Assyrians, not conquered, but invaded. But up to this point, there was a relative time of peace. So when the prophets start talking about that peace is going to be taken away, people are like, huh, what? It's kind of like America today when you say, hey, you know, we actually have some serious enemies that could take us out. Nobody really believes that. Because they're just like, hey, business as usual. We have prosperity. We have peace. How can there be any problem? Everybody forgets there were two world wars years, within 100 years of our lifetime. Two world wars that devastated the entire planet. Uh, that can happen again. Um, and so peace can breed complacency again, and that's what it did with the nation of Israel. And uh, because of these things, because of their complacency, and because of just human, plain old human sin, uh, one of the things that has to be addressed by the prophets is the apostasy. And the apostasy is to apostatize from God himself. The Israelites had the privilege that God had revealed himself to them. He hadn't done that to the other nations. The other nations are still walking around in darkness, generally speaking. They have the light of common grace and, and uh, general revelation, but um, they don't really have the true knowledge of God. And Israel did, and Israel kept moving from the true God into idolatry. It was just, just sort of a, just a, we might think on the surface a strange thing, is, but it's the nature of sin, to leave God and to come up with your own versions of right and wrong and things like that. So both Israel and Judah, though they make reference to the Lord, Israel and Judah are continually engaging in idolatry. And so one of the things that the prophets will always engage in is this saying, you have engaged in idolatry. And someone might say, well, idolatry is, you know, just one thing. It's like, okay. So let's say you, you know, you're, you're living with your husband and your wife and, and you, know, you find out that they you know, stole something or lied to you, that's one thing. But if you find out they committed adultery, that's quite another. And that is what apostasy is in the prophets. People have committed adultery against God. 
They have traded God in for idols. This isn't just, you know, some mistakes. This isn't just a few faux pas um, or some upsetments. This is a wholesale breach of loyalty and trust with the living God. There's apostasy. And then there's just general corruption. There's moral, cultural, and political corruption. It's at every level of society, and that's, you read the first chapter of Isaiah, and uh, reads very much like, like Micah, just at, at, everywhere you look, people are corrupt. Everywhere you look, people are in love with money. Everywhere you look, you can't trust anybody. Um, just a very uh, hard situation to be in. Um, and especially among the leaders and the elite, there was corruption. Um, and Micah himself just really goes to town on that one, showing that the leaders are uh, kind of leading the nation into this destruction. Again, it's driven by greed and sensuality. Remind you of any culture you might be familiar with uh, in your own life? Because there's nothing new under the sun. And then there's this injustice. And you'll read Micah, and you'll read the other prophets, and you'll see that there's this giving and expecting bribes to pervert justice. And so you go to court expecting justice, and you don't get it, and you wonder why, and you don't realize, well, you know, somebody over here bribed the judge, and you got the bad end of it. And so bribes really corrupt justice, and when you have a corrupt justice system, society almost totally breaks down. People lose trust, people lose confidence, um, people just become disillusioned. Uh, when the justice system doesn't work right, work well, it's a problem. <clears throat> people were plotting to defraud the poor of both money and land. Whatever money the poor had, you think, well, how can you steal from the poor? What's the definition of poor? They don't have any money. Well, these people would take whatever money they could get from the poor. Just unbelievable, uh, at least in our own minds, I'm sure. How can you defraud a poor person? You know, they already don't have money. You're going to take more from them? And their land, because remember, everybody had land as, a, as an inheritance from God, and it got passed down. And, and here, these people, the kings and people in powerful places and judges and leaders would work things around so they could take somebody's inheritance, something they weren't supposed to be able to do. And yet, they would, they would uh, just steal their land, defraud them of it. There were deceitful business practices of every kind going on. There was false witness, abuse of power, violence, and then just surprisingly, because you just can't imagine it, murder. I mean, these people were serious about getting your money or getting your land. They'd kill you. Remember what Ahab did and Jezebel? Um, killed a man just so he could have his vineyard. Um, so injustice was everywhere. Now, something to remember, something to... Uh, Consider, and I think it's really important for us where we are. This injustice, I'm not going to call a lack of social justice, when, because social justice in our day is a very difficult term to understand or use because it's been so completely hijacked and redefined by a movement in America that has absolutely nothing to do with the social justice of the Old Testament prophets. And that's what I want you to know this morning, that the social justice of the Old Testament prophets has nothing to do with the social justice of modern American culture in our day. Has nothing to do with the modern concepts of liberation theology, 
of taking the Bible and try to put it in the service of a concept of social justice that's just disastrous to any society. There's no mention in the prophets of identity politics. There's no mention in the prophets of intersectionality scores. There's no mention of privilege or racism. Those just are not there in the prophets. There's no neo-Marxism. There's no critical theory. There's no deconstruction of the nuclear family. There's no deconstruction of somebody's race or culture. There's no elevation of transgenderism. There is none of these things in the prophets. And yet that is the content of today's modern social justice movement. And Christians foolishly think that the Old Testament supports it. It absolutely does not. There is hardly anything in common with today's social justice movement in the prophets. Whether you read Amos, uh, that everybody seems to run, run and run to, or whether you read Micah, that has some great statements, or passages out of some of the other prophets, Isaiah, there is no, no relationship between the two. The social justice uh, that's, that's looked for in the Old Testament is basically the rectification of plain old injustice. The injustice that we usually understand to be greed and fraud and oppression of the poor, something that can be repented of. In today's modern concepts of social justice, there are a lot of things that can't be repented of. People are told you can't repent of your skin color. That's just crazy. And that has nothing to do with the Bible. So when you think of you know, the Old Testament and all the social justice warriors who want to claim Christianity and be social justice warriors, and they're quoting you know, four, five, 10, 15 quotes out of the Old Testament, they're completely and utterly misquoting and misrepresenting uh, the very nature of the social justice concerns in the Old Testament. So I just want to sort of throw that in there, let Micah kill a couple birds with uh, one Micah stone. Um, So just be careful when it comes to social justice and be able to explain to people when they say, you know, the social justice I'm pursuing today with all of the, the cultural deconstruction that's going on, the Old Testament prophets talk about it. Well, all you need to do to refute it is just go back and look at the passages they, they read to you and ask yourself, does this talk about what they just said? And it doesn't. And the other thing that the prophets will deal with is hypocrisy. Here are folks, Israelites, Judahites, people of north and south, continually claim to follow the Lord. They resort to religious speech and activity. They define their lives very much with the, the, the language of the Bible. They trust in religious ritual and ceremony. They appeal to false prophets. Of course, not calling them false prophets. And yet they are out there stealing land, oppressing, rigging their balances at the marketplace so that they don't give people a full measure. Whether they're, you know, small potatoes people or big potatoes people, corruption is just through and through. So there's this religious hypocrisy. So those are the things that the prophets are going to talk about, and as you probably well know, sometimes it's clear they're talking about it, sometimes it's not so clear, but there will be some kind of, uh, in all of the prophets, these threads, these themes will be woven through what they have to say. So what is God's response to all this? 
Well, we're going to see in Micah that he basically starts with what you might call a lawsuit. And it could be just a direct covenant lawsuit invoking Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, God said, when he was there talking to the Israelites, saying, you're going to enter into this covenant with me. You're going to reestablish a covenant with me. And God says, I call heaven and earth to witness to this covenant that we're making. And that's why the prophets, God says, you know, I'm calling upon heaven to witness to this. And you might go, well, why is God saying that? It's interesting. So you usually just read on. You don't realize God is invoking that, that covenant ceremony of Deuteronomy where he said heaven and earth is going to witness, you know, for me and against you if you break this covenant. And God just in general, also he starts to say, okay, I've got a problem with you. And, and God's almost like a lawyer lays out his case against people. Because God's really concerned about justice. And he wants people to understand that when, when, when he has a problem with someone, there's, there's a reason for it. It's not just, you know, gosh, God is mad today, or God's upset today, or God just doesn't like me today. You know, God does not work like that. That's why the old writers say that God is without passion. He doesn't get up in the morning, you know, and just be in a bad mood and just start, you know, kicking over mountains and throwing stars around. He just doesn't do that. And so God, when he starts to show people their sin, he comes in a very lawyerly way to say there's a problem here and you need to address it and here is the evidence. God calls heaven and earth again to witness for his own intent and his own faithfulness and he often itemizes the apostasy and failures of his people and leaders and so that's how God responds to the sin of people. He also talks about judgment, of course, and that's what we think of the prophets most is judgment, fiery judgment. Um, and the prophets announce a coming judgment in, in the pre-exilic prophets, that is, before they go into exile in around 600 B.C. The, the main problem, the, the, the big problem nation was the Assyrian, and God actually had raised up the Assyrian uh, to uh, come and discipline his people. And so that's how God would deal with uh, people in that day. He said, okay, you're not listening to me. I'm going to raise up somebody else, make them strong. They're going to just come out of nowhere, and they're going to beat the stuffing out of you. And uh, then maybe you'll start listening to me. And you'll often see city after city enumerated where God is going to say, I'm going to judge this city, and I'm going to judge that city, and I'm going to judge another city, another region. And just it becomes almost wearisome when you're reading it. At least it does for me because I, I just don't have those things in my mind and, and, and head. But it's good at those times just to step back and see what God is doing. God is in particular dealing with people in particular. He just doesn't come and do a blanket judgment and you happen to be caught there, tough luck for you. God is, is very clear in his judgments when he brings them. And often the judgments before the exile is you're going to get exiled. You're going to get deported. There will be devastation to your country and there will be deportation. And usually the language is vivid and cruel because God has had it. And we'll see that in Micah. And then there's God calling people to repent. Regular calls to soberly evaluate themselves, how they're doing, and to repent. And that's what we need to do. When God touches something in your life, what should you do? Get upset? Disregard it? Change the subject? What should you do? You know, you should... Find a space in your life as soon as you can to deal with what God has put his finger on in your life and to do it quickly, to do it soon. The sooner the better. All right? um, 
And so there's this call to repentance, and God genuinely appeals to people through his prophets, both with a carrot, hey, if you repent, you know, I will forgive your sin. And if you don't repent, you know, you're going to have a bad life. So do you want a good life? I have it freely to give to you. Or do you want a bad one? It all depends on how you're going to re- relate to sin that God puts his finger on in your life. And then God, in spite of all that's going on, in spite of the failure of his people, and the failure of his people, they're just, they're just in a dismal place in Micah and in most of the prophets, God is going to still bring to pass a glorious future. In spite of sin and apostasy, God promises a glorious future of gathering the people of God, of restoring them and blessing them under a permanent reign of the Davidic king. And that's what you need to grasp. That's the message of the prophets. You know, you guys aren't repenting. I'm going to have to bring you into judgment, but there is a future beyond judgment. And you need to put your hope in that future. And central to that future is the line of David, the Davidic king. Now, some of the things about prophecy that gets a little bit complicated is because sometimes there's a near fulfillment. When God said, okay, I'm going to bring you, you know, from where I've scattered you among the nations in judgment because you wouldn't listen to me. But now I'm going to come and bring you back, which is a major feat for God to do. He's going to go to every individual out there in every circumstance, no matter how far they have wandered, no matter far how far they've been exiled, and God is going to bring them and collect them and bring them back to the land. God can do that. It doesn't matter how far you are from God right now. God can reach you. God can collect you. God can bring you back to himself. And he says, I put you out there to cleanse you from your idolatry, and once that's done, once I know that my work is complete in you, and only God will know that. You know, when you, you have to put your kid in the corner and, and you put him in there, you're going to do it for 10 minutes. Well, they think five's enough, you know. And they're going to negotiate you down from 10 to five, or four, or three. And because we're softies, we usually get negotiated down to some level. But God doesn't negotiate down because when God sets the minutes you're going to spend in the corner, he knows exactly what it's going to take for you to stand in the corner to get your mind and heart rectified. And God knows when these people have been, their idolatry has been done with, and he's going to bring them back, and he's going to restore them to the land. And then there's language of local victory over enemies, and that's what gets confusing sometimes in the prophets, because there's a near fulfillment of victory over enemies as they're brought back. And there's a near fulfillment of temporal blessing but it's all mingled with language that's clearly something bigger than just local and temporal victory and fulfillment and blessing. But there is a near fulfillment. There's also a far fulfillment. When God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bring you back to land, I'm going to do this, he starts mixing in the language of a future permanent state of affairs where there'll be a reign of God over the nations, a messianic king and kingdom, a forgiveness of sins that's free and full and forever, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a universal worship of Yahweh, a universal peace and righteousness, a permanent state of blessing and glory. And that is the far promise of the prophets, the, the, the statements they make of this future, permanent, global, worldwide kingdom that is yet to come. And so, 
part of the difficulty and all the debates and the disagreements and the opinions coming out of the prophets are because people are trying to sort out what is near, what is far, and what are the steps to arrive at that far, and what are the steps within that far. Um, so it's an it's a interesting world. But something you'll see in the prophets very clearly, and this is the important thing to grasp, because this is where you can keep your feet on the ground. You may not be able to you know, de- wrangle some of the language, maybe a lot of the language, Okay, but there in the midst of obscure language, you will find places and spaces of clarity, and those are the ones you hang on to. Those are the ones you're sure about. The rest you're not sure about, but this I am sure about. And it's like, again, I used to tell my kids, they'd come to me with the word problems, right? You know, the kids get old enough to get the, the math problems and the word problems, and they're having to learn, their, their minds are still growing, how to turn a word problem into a mathematical equation. It's very, it, that's a very abstract thing. And so as the kids are wrangling the word problems, the word problems are kind of deceitful because they ask you to give an answer that you don't know. And so you focus on what you don't know and you find yourself wrestling all around. I don't know, how do I arrive at it? Instead, I just tell the kids, because you'll learn this, a computer will discipline you. If, if you want the greatest discipline in the world, try to program computers because you never win. They always win. Um, and, and you realize, okay, I'm not going to start with what I don't know. I'm going to start with what I do know. And that's what it's like when you're reading the prophets. When you see a passage that has clarity, grab onto it. Like, man, I know this. This is true. I can put that on the shelf. That's clear. The rest of this is a little bit obscure, but I know, I know what's true. And so some things that you'll always find true that are very clear in the prophets is the continuity of the history of redemption. There's absolute continuity. We've had 100 years, 150 years of a doctrine that for a while dominated evangelicalism that said there wasn't continuity in the history of redemption. That's just not so. Thankfully, things are swinging back. And um, that, that doctrine, by the way, did do some good things because it forced people to think about issues they hadn't been thinking about before. And that's usually what God does. It's like, okay, I want, I want my people to really think through an issue. How do I get them to do it? Uh, well, I'm just going to bring in some heresy and uh, let them wrestle with that for, you know, 50, 100, 200 years. And, uh, and the church, as it wrestles against what it knows to clearly be not true, it gets a better grasp on what is true. And so what is true is the continuity of the history of redemption. And the prophets are always saying, you have broken the Mosaic covenant. But I'm going to bring a new deliverance to you, a new exodus, which is sort of where we've been at in uh, preparation for the Gospels. And God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And God is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And as a symbol of the certainty of this fulfillment, God appeals to the Noahic covenant. Isaiah 54, this is the water, as the waters of Noah to me. If you can break my covenant of day and night, then I will cast you off from being my people. But if you can't break that covenant, but you can't, then, then your salvation is sure and certain. That's one of the foundations of what we might call uh, <clears throat> just the, the security of the believer. Am I going to make it to heaven? Well, God says, can you break the covenant God made with Noah? Can you stop day and night? If you can do that, then maybe you won't be saved. But if you can't do that, then your salvation is as sure as the heaven's and the earth. That Noahic covenant just stands there and just big, bold certainty of the sovereign grace of God. 
And all of these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, are consummated in the new covenant. And what's left out is the Mosaic covenant. The prophets never say, okay, in the future, you know, I'm going to get my people to go back and keep the Mosaic covenant. They will use language from that covenant, but that language is always used to paint a picture of something new. Something that is beyond that old covenant. A new covenant. And that things will be energized by the Holy Spirit. And that, that continuity is clear and ubiquitous. It's all over the prophets. Now here's one of my ugly pictures, sorry, for those who might benefit from it. The prophets stand between David and the new covenant. And so the prophets find their framework in the Psalms of David. They just don't pull a framework out of the sky. David pulled the framework out of the sky. God poured it on him out of the sky. And so the framework for interpreting the prophets is those psalms and other psalms that we looked at. Then there's terminology, and this again is confusing. There's creation, terminology, symbolic usage of geography and wild animals and husbandry and all these things. All the stuff around us the prophets bring into play very poetically to be representative of something else. It becomes symbolic language. There's the language of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's the language of temple worship. There's the language of Zion as God's holy mountain. I've sort of dwelt on that, and some of you wonder, why would Steve dwelt on such an obscure thing? Because when you look up Zion, all you gotta do is look it up, and uh, in a concordance you'll find out, hmm, that's not a small thing. It's actually a very big thing. Um, There's the Davidic dynasty, as we've gone over and said these things again. There's ancient geography. The language of ancient geography is used to paint a picture of a future. And so you go, hmm, maybe that ancient geography meant something to them to paint a picture for them, the immediate audience, to understand a future that they couldn't relate to without something that was familiar to them. Because remember, the prophets are trying to paint the gospel in old covenant colors. All they've got is the colors of the old covenants, Davidic, Abrahamic, and they're trying to paint a gospel that we see clearly from the New Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. If you had told uh, an Israelite, you know, in 700 B.C. that, you know, gosh, the nations are going to be saved, which Isaiah does a lot, they probably wouldn't hear you. They didn't hear Isaiah because uh, that's just a new concept to them. They use ancient enemies and ancient military equipment and strategy to paint a picture of spiritual warfare in the present. And so the terminology is interesting. So this language and imagery of Noah, Abram, Moses, David is what the prophets take up to paint the future. So let's look at Micah. Hopefully we can go through it quickly because we've already looked at some of the things we need to say. So Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So when Micah's writing, here's his immediate audience. It's Samaria and Jerusalem. And remember at this time, Israel and Judah are now separate nations with separate dynasties of kings. They've been so now for over 200 years. Uh, they have been separate uh, countries, as it were. And just imagine, you know, we got our independence from England in 1776, which wasn't more than, you know, a little bit more than 200 years ago. So that's how old this division in Israel had, was. And it came in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And again, folks, when you see an entry to the prophets like this, of, you know, the first statement, go find you know, a uh, survey of the Bible 
and go look it up, and you'll go, oh, all this, who's Jotham, who's Ahaz, who's Hezekiah? won't take you but five minutes to figure it out. And then the prophecy becomes much more, I guess, you know, easy to grasp because you, at least you have some familiarity. And so Micah occurs during the times of these kings from about 740 B.C. to about 710 B.C. We can date Micah pretty well because he predicts the fall of Samaria that happened in 722 B.C. So we know Micah wrote before 722 B.C. But he also depicts a situation before Hezekiah's reforms, which were in around 7, you know, 10, 715 B.C., so he wrote before that. So we can pretty much date him. He falls right in this category, three kings um, from about 740 to about 710 B.C. And also remember, again, we sort of went over that, that uh, sort of real quick, fast review of uh, world history. Um, there are the big empires of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon in the post-exilic or pre-exilic prophets. They're the major players. And then there's the minor kingdoms of Syria, Israel, and Judah. And you're going to see the language of that. So when it says, I'm going to, you know, trash Nineveh, God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go and destroy Nineveh. Well, he means I'm going to go and destroy the Assyrians. Nineveh stands for Syria, Assyria. And when he says, I'm going to, you know, bring judgment on Samaria, he's meaning northern Israel. Just like we talk about, well, Washington said, well, Washington is representative of the leadership of the country. Uh, or I'm going to bring havoc on Damascus. Well, that means um, Syria. So that language is important to know. So these three factors are there in the, in the time of Micah. There's the Assyrian, the Syrian, and the Israelite, the northern Israelites. And then there were contemporary prophets, Hosea and Micah. Now the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Micah means he who is like the Lord. That, that phrase occurs in 718 where Mike himself says, who is, who is like unto our God? Um, Moresheth Gath is actually mentioned as one of the cities that's going to be destroyed. So Micah's prophesying doom over his own hometown. It's located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So like Amos, Micah was a country boy. Right? Micah raised chickens, uh, did all those kind of things, raised cattle. So it's the word of the Lord that came to this fellow Micah of Moresheth. And Moresheth, again, is just located southwest of Jerusalem. And it's the word of the Lord which came to Micah, which he saw. Now, Micah is going to contain God's specific words to people of that day and to people beyond that day. It's an abiding word of God. It just wasn't for the time. It has meaning and significance far beyond Micah's day. It said which he saw concerning Jerusalem and uh, Samaria and Jerusalem. It could be that he saw a vision of this, so it was a very visionary message. Or it could be they're just using this as a general term. The prophets were called seers because they saw things that the average person did not. They saw the revelation of God. Now, one thing that's interesting is that Micah 3.12 is quoted in Jeremiah 26.18. Jeremiah is on trial because Jeremiah has been prophesying. Say, hey, Jerusalem's going to get destroyed. Well, those who didn't like to hear that message, didn't want to hear bad things, they're going to go, well, we're going to kill this guy, you know, because he's saying bad things. This is treasonous. Well, in the middle of the trial, someone stands up and says, well, wait a minute. There's this guy, Micah of Moresheth, who prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion's going to be plowed as a field, Jerusalem become ruins, and the mountain of the house of the of the house, that is Zion, as the high places of a forest, that is a barren, bald mountain. Uh, and, uh, and so 
Jeremiah got off the hook because he got to appeal to Micah. Hey, wait a minute, Micah said this. What are you beating me up for? Um, and so it's kind of interesting that 100 years after Micah wrote, the nation of Israel, even though he had really hard prophecies to Israel, regarded it as the word of the Lord and had it as part of their corpus of uh, just, uh, you know, divine literature. This is from God. Had a scroll. Now, Micah's hard to address because it's a collection of prophecies, sort of an anthology. It didn't, Micah just didn't sit down and write it all at once. Um, he sort of probably got some, some prophecies here or there, wrote them down here and there, and finally at some point started collecting them together. So they're arranged and coordinated to give a consistent message, but some of the transitions are really rough and abrupt, and it's really hard to read at times. Themes are restated across all the sections of Micah, and that's just the thing to understand. So about a third of a Micah, the material spread across it, seven chapters, is to expose the apostasy and sin of the people and its leaders. About a third of the material is devoted to the judgment to come, uh, because of their apostasy and the deportation that will occur uh, in 600 thereabouts B.C. And a third of it is devoted for pleas to repentance and a promise of a future hope beyond judgment. So if you understand Micah, you generally understand how to read the prophets. So, okay, enough, so to speak, for a little Bible lesson. Let's look at what Micah has to say. God begins by, as we have said, pursuing a legal course against Israel and Judah. Hear, O peoples, all of you listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Here is Micah painting a picture of God the righteous judge. And God the righteous judge has ought against the people of God. He's got evidence against them. They have been in sin. They have been apostatizing from him. They have been going after other gods is the main statement in this passage. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. And here's God saying, okay, I've got the evidence and now I'm coming in judgment. You can't argue with me. I have evidence. You all just need to recognize that the evidence is against you and the proper response is justice and wrath, righteous justice from God. And the picture is that of uh, you know, mountains being broken in half. The picture is that of valleys being split. The picture, he says, is like the mountains are going to be like wax before a fire. It won't be wax melting. It'll be mountains melting I don't know, if you woke up and saw this happening in your backyard, how would you feel? I mean, you start going, okay, wait a minute, the earth's uh, coming unglued here. And uh, is this going to happen one day? Is this not the descriptions of the judgment of God, that ultimate judgment, when God rolls up heaven and earth like a scroll? And all that's left are human beings before the throne of God, and they have nowhere to hide. Nowhere to go, nowhere to run. So God's justice, when it comes, lays everything bare. There's some other things that are said, said here. It's basically because of your sin, because of your idolatry. I'm going to pour your stones down in the valley. Again, I'm going to take the stones that they built walls with around cities, and I'm going to break them down and pour them into the valleys that are usually around the city. And I'm going to lay bare those foundations that those stones were sitting on 
and all of our idols that are going to be or that are in the city will be smashed and all of our earnings will be burned in fire and all of our images will I make desolate. And he talks about a harlot's earning because harlotry was very much part of the idol worship. It was a very sensual situation. Then Micah says, okay, you know, God comes and says, there's going to be cities that I'm going to destroy. He starts itemizing the cities. Gath, Bethlehabra, Shafir, Zaan, Nan, Beth Ezel, Merith, Lachish, Morasheth, Gath, um, Micah's own hometown, Merisha, Adullam. Make yourself bald, cut off your hair, because the children of your delight extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. So God itemizes the city. And if you're sitting there reading it and paying attention, what you realize is God is talking about cities in a particular order. It's the order in which any conquering army coming down the coastal plain and starting to go up to take Jerusalem, they would follow this this trail, this path, this highway as it were, and these are the cities they would conquer on the way to Jerusalem. God is taking Jerusalem out. Jerusalem's mentioned here twice. And if you're reading this, I mean, this is 100 years before it happened. Babylon taking it. The Assyrian is going to come in Hezekiah's time, sort of a nearer fulfillment, and the Assyrian's going to do this very thing. So if you're sitting there reading, what if you live in Lachish? You haven't read far enough. It's the first time you're reading, you go, oh, Jerusalem, wow. Gath, boy. At least it's not Lachish. Shafir, Zanon, Bethesel, Lachish. Oh no, this is going to happen to my city too. See, God is trying to intensify and make very real and personalize that his judgment is coming for you because you have sinned against God. You have rejected the God who has given you light and truth. And so it's a very intense prophecy, very vivid Chapter 2, 1, to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil in the beds. Now the prophet is going to turn from just this general judgment and the the case against them for idolatry to the, the sin and the wickedness that they're pursuing. They scheme iniquity and work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. So they stay up all night scheming how they can get somebody's land, thinking, oh man, I'll get another acre or two. I'll have a little bit more riches. And when the morning comes, their schemes they start to pursue. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away and rob a man of his house, a man of his inheritance. So here is oppression of the, just the plainest stamp. Nothing here about the racial, social justice of our day. What is here is the absolute wickedness of oppressing people out of their property and their goods. That's what it's about. Micah 2, 3 through 7, Behold, I'm planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove yourselves. In the Hebrew, they were scheming evil, and God says, Now I'm scheming evil against you. And so this, uh, Micah, the prophecy is just this uttering against the people of, of Israel themselves that he is going to respond to their sinfulness with judgment, respond in kind. Micah 2, 8 through 12, again, in some more statements, a bunch of obscurity actually in this passage, but it's basically uh, women of my people you're evicting, so they're evicting the, the widow and the fatherless. From her children you take away my splendor forever, whatever that means, but uh, it's just uh, this 
oppression isn't just, oh, they can, the, the person they oppress can recover next week. The person they oppress is destroyed for the rest of their life. It's just so evil on their part. But then it kind of out of nowhere, Micah says, but I'm going to surely assemble you. Remember, he said, I'm going to disperse you. I'm going to send you to the nations. You're going to get exiled. But then just out of nowhere, I will surely assemble you, all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Not everybody, but a remnant. We got a little bit of Romans, you know, 9 through 11 going on here. And I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of a pasture. They will, they will be noisy with men. And uh, we are watching, anybody, anybody watch the veterinarian shows? Dr. Pole and all those, they're kind of cool. And uh, man, those creatures are noisy. They're yakky things. And so this is what he's saying. I'm going to just gather all these people and there's going to be such a big flock of people. The noise is just going to rise up from all the sheep and all the busyness that's going on. <clears throat> the breaker goes up before them. They break out. They pass through the gate. So their king goes on before him and the Lord at their head. So here's kind of a bit of an obscure prophecy. But notice it comes out of nowhere. This is God offering grace. This is God pursuing grace. God has been speaking of judgment, but now he turns and he says, but I'm going to pursue grace. You all have failed. You all have sinned. And you've hardened your hearts, but there's a day coming where I am going to bring about grace. And it won't depend on you. I am going to gather my people back again. And their king will go on before them and the Lord will be at their head. And so the first picture you have in, in Micah of the kingdom of God that is coming is that there will be a Messiah. There will be a king at the head of this bunch of sheep from Basra. And there will be a remnant. The people of God will be a remnant. Micah 3, 1 through 4. Hear now, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? So now Micah's going to start taking the rulers to task. Like, you guys got into your public office and you were supposed to be there to do good, and instead of doing good, you're doing evil. You hate good and love evil, who tear off the skin from people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and strip off their skins. God starts to describe what these people are doing in their oppression as if they were butchers, butchering human beings. That's how God sees it. Oppression is not some minor thing. And so when I try to dissociate modern-day social justice, which is neo-Marxism, from the Bible, I'm not doing it because I don't care about justice. I'm doing it because absolutely I care about justice. Absolutely God cares about justice. Oppression is awful. God sees it. It's like you're cutting somebody up and boiling them in a pot. Micah 3, 5 through 8. Prophets who lead my people astray. So now he starts talking about the false prophets. When they have, it's actually a little bit clear in the uh, American Standard Version. I sort of was hoping it would be clear here. When they have nothing to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. Or rather, when they have something to bite with their teeth. What it really means is, here's some false prophets. And if you'll give them something to eat, if you'll pay them what they want, then they'll say great things about you. All right? But if you don't put anything in their mouth, that's the description, if you don't pay them any money, then they are going to declare a holy war on you. So here are these prophets supposedly representing the people, you know, God to the people, and they're basically saying, if you're not giving me money, 
I'm coming after you. If you give me money, okay, I'll check the box this week. And so it's basically extortion. Any, any, do, we, do we know any people like that in the, the media today who are just in it, these false prophets in it for the money? Nothing new under the sun. They get up there and say, you've got to give money to the Lord. You've got to give it to me, of course, because I'm representing the Lord. And if you don't, you'll be in trouble with God, declaring war. So there's false prophecy and everything going on. The leaders abhor justice. They twist everything. They build Zion with bloodshed, violent injustice, judgment for a bribe. They instruct for a price. They divine for money. They just love money. Isn't that something Jesus said to the Pharisees? They just love money. The corruption is pervasive and inveterate. There is no remedy. There's distortion, violence, bribery is driving the entire social order. There's the love of money. And again, it's at the root of things. And therefore, God is bringing judgment. So, if it got left there, it's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? Then you turn and you get one of the most significant prophecies in the Old Testament. So significant that it is reiterated in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, Micah 4, 1 through 2. But in the latter days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so here you start to see that terminology, that that those set of components, that composite of what the kingdom of God is about. The mountain of the Lord's house, Zion, will be exalted above all mountains. It's imagery. It's not something that's going to happen literally. It's imagery. And everybody's going to flow to it. Now, how, do, how does water flow, uphill or downhill? You know, and so that's why this is imagery. This cannot be real <laughs> uh, in terms of the physics we currently know. Because the mountain's going to be up here and people are going to flow up to it. Many nations, this is beyond Israel, the nations shall come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. People are going to be telling each other. There will be proclamation. There will be sharing information. There will be an, an urging of people. Let's all go. Hey, tell your neighbor, tell your friend, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Because he's going to teach us of his ways and his righteousness and his truth. These are people who have turned from not loving God to loving God. You don't want to know about God unless you love God. See, if you, if, if you don't love God, his word is going to be really boring to you. It might have some interest at some point, but after that it's just boring. But if you love God, it's his word. He's teaching you of his ways. Because out of Zion, out of this place, goes forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So again, we have this picture here is this Zion and this nations and this proclamation. These are components of what Micah is talking about. And as he goes on, and he will judge between many peoples and decide concerning strong nations afar off. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's kind of interesting. In that day, I was listening to someone the other day about this. He was just saying, in that day, iron was hard to come by. Now, if you're a farmer and you're trying to plow your fields, you know the difference between plowing with a tractor or plowing with a plowshare that you've got a horse pulling it. And the difference between that plowshare could be I either got a steel end on what's digging the ground up that's sharp 
or I've got a stick. It's really hard to do. And so people are going to say, hey, here's all these weapons of war. I'm going to take them back to my house and I am going to pound them into a plowshare. I'm going to get a new tractor uh, out of this. They're going to take all their spears and all their weapons of war and they're going to turn them into farm instruments, which would be, a, when people would read this, they would, that would be a big deal to them in that society. Nation won't lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, this is a great picture of Jesus Christ bringing ultimate peace to the nations. All right, he's the Prince of Peace. He says that we're to be children of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, peace is very important to the Lord, and one day he will bring peace to all nations. All right? So this is really appropriate in God's word, but it's not appropriate on the UN building. They quote this passage, that somehow the UN is going to bring peace to all nations, which somehow I don't think they've been able to accomplish, nor would I trust them. Uh, it's a human endeavor, and it will always fail. They won't learn any war. But it sh- every man shall sit under his vine and his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all the peoples will walk, every one in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so when you take these components out of it, what is added to it is there's this, this essence that this is an eternal thing that's happening. And when you go on, six through eight, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, gather outcasts, even those who I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant. And outcasts is a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, that's again, Zion itself, that's on a hill, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And so there is this sort of component, we might say, of this description of dominion, of rule and reign of the kingdom of God. Now Micah goes on. But before we get there, I just want to note that the people who God gathers are broken people. God, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. This kingdom that God is establishing in his Son and his Messiah is a kingdom that saves sinners. He's here to gather the nations together and gather sinners. So the question for you this morning is not, oh, am I doing good? Am I going to be able to... The question for you this morning is, are you a sinner? If you're a sinner, then you can be saved. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Psalm 22, it said that... that you know, I declare my name unto my brother, and I was thinking about it this week and just how the Lord describes the meek of the earth. He's not out there getting the rich people. He's not out there getting the poor people, or the important people, rather. He's out there getting, as it describes in Psalm 22, those that cannot even keep their soul alive. Is that where you are today? Are you someone who, when you... When you go back home today, you're going to go, man, I am such a mess, I can't even keep my soul alive. I can't even figure my life out. I'm a wreck. Those are the ones Jesus came to save. Those are the ones this prophecy in Micah is talking about. These are the people God gathers from nations and puts in families. Well, the final sort of thing to look at, but who's going to accomplish all this? We all know the prophecy, but as for you, Bethlehem, 
And it's really, we would understand it as Judah, Ephratah is just, it's an obscure name for us, but we should say Bethlehem, Judah. Um, You're too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so Micah says the one who's going to accomplish all this is the one who's going to come from Bethlehem. And so when you hear that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that he would come from Bethlehem, I mean, I spent years just thinking, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting prophecy. It just kind of, in this obscure book, you know, Micah, one of those few things I could know and could understand, I just thought, okay, a prophecy is fulfilled. I had no idea that that prophecy is connected to everything else in the book, everything about, you know, the mountain of the Lord's house being exalted above all the nations. The one from Bethlehem is the one who's going to accomplish that. It's tied directly to it. So the, the prophecies about Jesus are not just little individual, encapsulated little items. They are all of a piece. They are all together. They are all consistent. They all belong in this comprehensive set of realities that are described. And so he's going to be the son of God from everlasting. So there's the picture that Micah paints of the kingdom of God. In the midst of an ocean of obscurity, these things are clear. Several things. In the days when you come out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Micah 7, 14 and 15, here is the passage about a new exodus. This, there will be a new Mosaic leader who will shepherd the people of God and bring out what is in terms of a new exodus. So the salvation that's going to come is also in terms of a new exodus. And furthermore, who's a God like unto you, Micah's very name, who pardons iniquity? Are you here today going, man, I am such a sinner? I have sinned so much against the Lord, there's no way, uh, there's no way he's going to have me. Listen to Micah. Who is like unto the God who pardons iniquity? Who is like him? He passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his people. Have you been a rebel? Have you just been defiant against God? He pardons iniquity. He pardons rebellion. He does it because he delights in Hesed, he delights in unchanging love. God delights in goodness and kindness. God delights to forgive your sin. He's not pushing you out saying, well, maybe I'll have you, maybe I won't. You come to Jesus Christ today and he will save you from your sin. He will have compassion. He's not going to look on our sin and go, oh, well, you did that, you're just a dirtball. No. God will forgive sin and God will heal our brokenness from our sin. He's going to tread our iniquities underfoot. He's going to cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Man, look at that emphasis. This whole set of phrases about God forgiving and dealing with sin. And that's what it's all about. Being reconciled to the living God. And God is there with his hands wide open. Jesus is there with his nail-pierced hands open to receive all who come to him. And I will give you the truth to Jacob and the unchanging love that I promised to Abraham. God is going to save people, not on the basis of Moses. Moses was a great guy, but he can't save you. He's going to save people on the basis of Abraham and David and promises, promises that are based in grace, not in law. And that is the end of Micah. One last favorite verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do three things. Do justice, love kindness, Walk humbly with God. 
This is usually a popular and a favorite verse because it keeps things simple, doesn't it? What do you have to do to please God? As he said in, in another place, am I going to, you know, am I going to get my most expensive calf? Is, am I going to get rivers of oil? Am I going to uh, even give my own son as a sacrifice to you? I mean, that is not who God is. He just wants simple things from us. To do justice, to love love. The word kindness there is hesed, which means just loyal love, just love that's real, love that's from the depths, love that's genuine. To love love and to walk humbly with God, to walk with God. God wants you to walk with him. Are you a broken person today who can't keep your soul alive thinking, what does God want with me? He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to walk with the God who made the universe. That's what he wants. It says it right here. This is what is good, to walk with me. And he invites every human being on the planet to walk with him. Actually, in Jesus, he commands, but he often phrases it, just come. So this is Micah. This is the kingdom of God. And uh, I hope that's helpful to you all. It might seem like a long journey trying to get to the kingdom of God, but there's so much confusion out there and so much debate. Um, I just feel like we just got to have a, a firm foundation so that when we get to Daniel and talk about the kingdom, when we get to the book of Revelation, talk about the kingdom, don't have to go rolling back in the Old Testament fixing things all the time. It's like, okay, we've already walked over this. Maybe we'll refer to it, but we've walked through it and dealt with it. So that is it for today.